Well, today we are going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of James. Uh, Last week, our brother Jason preached a great and helpful sermon for us uh, at the beginning of chapter two in which James warns us about the insidious nature, the, the, the silent, creeping, uh, but deadly nature of, uh, of partiality. How partiality is a sin of hypocrisy and a, a practical rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are many ways along with and besides partiality that we can with our actions undermine and even disprove that we love and follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord as we say that we do. And James is going to point out in this letter how, uh, in chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, how our tongues can be used violently to destroy in direct opposition to the way the Lord has called us to love him and one another. Or also in this book, how we can be tempted to practice jealousy and selfish ambition or to choose all kinds of worldliness and sensuality, things that bring us pleasure that do not please God, or to forsake Jesus when hard trials come into our lives, or to deal pridefully toward God and other people. How can you tell, how can we tell if someone's faith is real? This is an important question. How can we examine our own lives? How can we help examine the lives of others and be able to recognize faith that is true, right? People can make claims about anything, but of course, just because someone says something doesn't make it true, right? And there are many people who claim to be Christians but their lives don't match up with their professions. So how can we tell if someone's faith is real? And James tells us that there's an answer. There is a way that we can know. There is a place that we can look, right? He believes, as as is evident throughout this entire book, that once a person has received by faith, as we saw in chapter one, the implanted word, the gospel of truth, which is able to save souls, he believes that that person will live a life of doing good works that please God. Certainly, this will be done imperfectly, but James assumes that this will be the heart and trajectory of the one who has faith that is alive. And so James wants us to know that the fruit that is produced in our lives, as we examine our lives, is proof of what we really believe. And he's gonna refute in this passage in James chapter two, beginning in verse 14, he's going to refute what he sees as being a dangerous perversion of what it means to have faith. Okay, so uh, a main point for today is saving faith is shown to be true by our works of obedience. So again, Saving faith is shown to be true by our works of obedience. And we're going to unpack this text today in two main sections. The first will be much shorter than the second. So when we finish the first one, don't think the second one will be the same length. It will be longer. Uh, 
but the first section is the value of faith that does not work. The value of faith that does not work. That'll be verses 14 through 17. And then secondly, we'll, we'll get to the relationship between faith and works, which will be verses 18 through the end of the chapter, 18 to 26. So the value of faith that does not work, beginning in James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So as we, as we look at uh, this, this entire passage today, we're going to see, uh, yes, some form of the words faith or believe 13 times. So in 13 verses, 13 times the word faith or believe shows up. Another 12 times the word works is used. So what is at the forefront of James's mind? The relationship between faith and works. If we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as we would often describe the means by which we are saved, and it is true, is it then necessary for us to have works? Is to say that works are a necessary part of being a disciple of Jesus, is that a rejection of the true gospel? So James is going to get at the heart today of what it means to truly have faith and what it means if someone has faith that isn't accompanied by works. And so he begins with this question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Right, so if, if someone says that he has faith, whatever faith may mean, someone says he has faith, while it's not accompanied by any action beyond those words, what good is that? What does it profit? Can that faith save him? Right, these, these seem like leading questions, right? Because they are. And the farther that we go in this argument, it's going to become more and more clear that the answer to James's question is, well, James, it's no good. No, that faith can't save anyone. So what we shouldn't hear is James saying that faith can save. What we shouldn't hear is James saying that faith can't save someone. Right? He's not denying that faith can save. Rather, he's going after a particular kind of so-called faith. Can that, he says, can that faith save him? Can the kind of faith that does not have works, that is the faith that is only ever alone, can that kind of faith save the man who has it? And so to illustrate his point, James is gonna give us a, a picture, right? A picture that everyone understands, especially as he's writing to scattered Christians, uh, primarily Jewish Christians who are facing uh, persecution, who are facing uh, likely famine, 
they're going to understand this illustration that he's going to give, right? If a brother or sister that you know is lacking in the basic necessities of life, clothing and daily food, proper covering and sustenance for their bodies, and your answer is to say, go in peace, be warmed, be filled. I hope you get warm. I hope you get full. Brother, I will pray for you. But you don't meet their needs, though you have the means to do so. What, what good is that? They don't have better clothing. They don't have food on their tables. What good is, yeah, what good are your words? Right? Your words mean what? They mean nothing. They don't prove your concern and your goodwill. Neither do they accomplish what is needed. Your words without action, they're just talk. They are empty. Your brother, your sister that, that you know has that need, that they would be no worse off if you were on the other side of the world. That kind of faith is what? It's no good. It does nothing. In the same way, the obvious point, the kind of faith that is merely words and it's not accompanied by works that glorify God and benefit others in the way that God intends it to do, that kind of faith is dead. And James' point isn't simply to say that we as Christians should provide basic needs for the poor among us, right? That, that's not his point. Is that true? Absolutely. We see that all over scripture. We should provide for the needs of our brothers and sisters. We should care for those who are vulnerable. What James is doing, he's using an obvious example of something that is not good, that everyone agrees with in order to show the nature of faith that doesn't have works. This kind of faith that is characterized by hearing and not doing is not actually a living faith. It is worth nothing. It is dead. That being said, someone will, of course, object. Right? Some attempt to justify oneself will come. And so James is going to present that, that scenario, and he's going to pull out his Bible. Right? He's going to look to see what the scriptures have to say about faith and works. He's going to give examples that illustrate the difference between faith that has works and faith that is by itself without works. Okay, and that's going to bring us to our second, uh, our second section, the relationship between faith and works. This is verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so to to highlight here the, the relationship between faith and works, James compares for us two different kinds of faith. All right, so verses 18 and 19, the first kind is the faith of demons. The faith of demons. So James is going to hold up a representation of the arguments of those who would object to his teaching, saying, you have faith and I have works. That's the argument. We can take this to be an attempt to separate faith and works as distinct things. In other words, different people have different gifts. One has faith and one has works. They're valuable, but they're different. Someone can have faith without works. And James's reply is what? Show it to me. Let me see it. You can't do it. It's his point. You you can't show me something if it has no action. You can't show me the faith that you have if if it doesn't produce something. There has to be some way that it becomes visible. I, on the other hand, James says, I will show you that I have faith and I will do it by my works. You'll see my faith. You'll see both that it exists and you'll see in what object it rests. And you'll see this by what I do. Faith that produces nothing, that is, faith that does not have works, cannot be shown to another person because without those works, there's nothing that makes it visible. There's nothing to see, and we should presume that it is dead. See, James wants us to know that faith and works are inseparably linked. That's why Jesus... That's why he says each tree is known by its own fruit. We know it by what we see it producing. An apple tree, it produces what? Apples. A fig tree produces what? Figs. A peach tree produces what? Peaches. A dead tree produces what? nothing. You'll know it by its fruit. If the objector then says, well, I I do believe, I believe, for instance, that God is one. Well, James says, well done. That's orthodox. But guess what? Even the demons do that. Even the demons know that God is one. Even the demons know some good doctrine about God. Right? The demons believe in God, and even their understanding that he is one, what does it not do? 
it doesn't lead them to act in ways that please God. It doesn't lead them to give thanks to God as God because their works are evil. Their belief in God then leads them to the knowledge that they are deserving of judgment. And what is their response? They tremble in fear. They expect judgment. And so should all who know truth about God, but will not submit to him. That's, that's sobering. It should be. Right? The kind of faith that does not work, that's the faith of demons. So, brothers and sisters, I would ask you, what differentiates your faith from the faith of demons? What fruit do you see born, being born out in your own life? What or who controls you? Is it Jesus? Is Christ the one that controls you? Is he the reason that you live the way that you do and do what you do? Or is it your own ambition? Is it your need to be respected or your need to be rightly understood? Is it your need to be justified before others and to maintain your image at the expense of honoring and obeying Christ? Or perhaps at the expense of considering your spouse or your roommate or your neighbor or your coworker or someone else you know as being more important than yourselves? Are you actively aiming to please God? Because if it's not active, it's not happening. Are you actively aiming to please God? Are you actively aiming to know him? Are you opening up your life to others in humility so that you can grow in godliness, humbling yourselves by, by confessing sin and, and, and pointing out your need for Jesus so that they can help you grow? Are you willing to humble yourself for that? Right? Is there any growth as you look at your life in love or in joy or in peace or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control or any other number of fruits that we see that the Spirit produces in his people? Is there hypocrisy that as... I ask all these questions, is there hypocrisy that you need to repent of? Or is it enough for you to simply say that you are a Christian while you live as the Lord of your own life? To believe that faith apart from works is anything but useless, to believe that it's a real category a category that someone might find safety or salvation in, this is foolish. It's the faith of demons. 
And so James is going to turn to the Old Testament scriptures then to show us examples of what real faith looks like. Okay, verse, verse 20, this is the faith of saints. So the first example we're going to see is Abraham, right? So verse 21, um, yes, 21, uh, he uh, James is going to begin with the example of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Wait, what? Was he justified by works? For those who are a little more familiar with your Bibles, you will recognize that this sounds like the opposite thing that Paul says. What does Paul say? Well, Romans 4. I'm going I'm to go to a couple of passages here. You're welcome to turn with me if you like. Um, be sure to keep your, uh, yeah, keep your page in James. But Romans 4, verse 9. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So what, what Paul is doing is pointing out that Abraham's belief in God was counted to him as righteousness, and his faith in God was the means by which he was declared righteous, but the means by which he was justified. That's Genesis 15, 6. Two chapters later, so not before, but after, and it's actually many years after, uh, yeah, his faith, so after his faith had been credited to, credited to him as righteousness, then, Genesis 17, Abraham was circumcised. So Paul is pointing out that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And then the example that James is going to come along and give of Abraham offering up Isaac at the altar, it's even later than that. Genesis 22. Cody read for this passage for us earlier. Paul's point is that no one can look to Abraham's circumcision as having been what? A cause of his salvation. It didn't play any role in God's counting of righteousness to him. Abraham's salvation was only on the basis of his faith in God before he was circumcised. That is, before he worked. That's what Paul is saying. So another, another passage from Paul. This is Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in this passage, what does Paul say about works of the law? Well, he says that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. He says no one is justified before God by the law. He's going to say the same thing in Romans 3. He says the law is not of faith. He says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And alternatively, what does he say about faith? Well, he says the righteous shall live by faith. And he says the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, that is, the one who relies on them, shall live by them. He also says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. How? Through faith. Or again, briefly, consider his statement, Galatians 5, verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So Paul, really clearly, this is a sampling of passages. There's a whole lot of others. But Paul really clearly wants us to know that God's salvation is not obtained or even maintained for that matter, by keeping works of the law. All who rely on them are under a curse. What he's doing is going after any inclination that we might have to take any ounce of credit for our own salvation, as though we had some part in earning it. This is God's doing. God alone saves. His salvation is by grace through faith. It is the gift of God that is obtained by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul wants us to know that Christ alone must be the object of our faith. If we are relying on works of the law for salvation, we will be condemned. That's what Paul says. So how do we square this then with what James is saying? Right, James says that Abraham was justified by works. At first glance, they seem to be saying opposite things, don't they? But I, yeah, as we, as we consider how they're using words, what they're doing in their arguments, it actually becomes really clear that they agree with each other entirely. So the term justify, which we've heard several times, it means literally to declare righteous. It's true when James uses it, it's true when Paul uses it. But they're using it differently, their aim is different. Paul says that no one is justified before God by works of the law. When God declares someone either guilty or innocent, 
who is going to overturn his decree? No one. He's God. No one overturns God's decree. So when he declares something, or he declares someone to have right standing, he does it as the sovereign judge making a judicial declaration that will stand forever. When, when God decrees that someone is, and when, when he declares that someone is righteous, he's creating the reality. It's becoming true as he pronounces it. So when he formally declares that someone is in right standing with him, that is, they are righteous, the declaration that he is making is solely, if he's going to be just in making that declaration, it is solely on the basis of Christ's merit. It is solely based on the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life that was without sin. He willingly became sin and died a substitutionary death on our behalf and he was raised to life so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus did all that, but how, how does that become true of us? How is it that Jesus' death counts as ours and his righteousness and life come to be accounted to us? What happens through union with him by faith alone in him? And this is the work of the Holy Spirit to take what God or what Jesus has done and to apply it to those who believe. This is the only way that one may be declared righteous before God. James is not seeking to overturn this. James does not disagree. He is not contradicting Paul. He has a different aim with his words. What he is doing is responding to those who hear that salvation is by faith alone and who see salvation as a get out of hell and get into heaven kind of reality that has no bearing on the way that we live. That's what James is going after. His aim is to convey the uselessness, the emptiness, the deadness, the false category of the kind of faith that leads them there, that is the faith that produces no works. Because the faith that Paul was describing, the one who is justified in Paul's words, that faith shows itself by the action that it produces, not as a cause of salvation, not as a cause of the Spirit's work, but as the inevitable result. So when, James says, when Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice to God, he was declared righteous. James is not using this as a legal declaration that created that standing. He's using it as a declaration that what God had already declared of him was both evidenced as being true and brought to its fulfillment, brought to its completion. Verse 22, the first two words, they help make James's point more clear. You see, 
you see. It's one of five instances in the passage where James uses some form of the word see or show. It's the idea of taking something that was perhaps previously hidden, not perceived, and making it become visible and known. Works done in faith are what show and help all to see that faith is present and real. Abraham's faith in God, it's seen. And it's seen as being not independent of, but active along with Abraham's works. His faith is fueling Abraham's works. It's underneath them. It's alongside them. When was that true? Well, it was true when his faith worked. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. But not only was his faith in God active along with his works, but his faith was also, the text says, completed by his works. What, is, what does that mean? What does it mean that his faith was completed? Well, because Abraham believed God, we're able to see the reality of his faith. But the reality is a little bit deeper than that. It's a little bit more than that. It's not just whether or not it's visible. The kind of faith that he truly had in God led him to do what? Led him to obey God. When God called him to go and offer his son Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice. But what if God had said, Abraham, go and offer Isaac your only son on the altar, and Abraham didn't do it? What if that had not happened? Would anyone say that Abraham had real faith in God? Well, no. That faith, whatever that was that Abraham had, it would neither be visible nor would it be brought to its completed aim. By nature of his disobedience, in that case, we would know his faith to be false. But his faith was Alive, And he did, in fact, obey God. And by his obedience, the scripture was fulfilled. It's completed. That says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, what becomes clear by this language is that there are only two categories. There is a faith that works or there is a faith that is dead. There's nothing in between. There's no middle ground. And Abraham's faith was brought to its completion by his obedience, that is by his works. And for that reason, Abraham was called a friend of God. And then we get to verse 24, and as we see that as it was true for Abraham, it's also true for all who are justified. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is true of anyone who will be saved. This is the, this is the nature of true faith. The only kind of faith by which a person is saved, the kind of faith that is alive and not dead, is the kind that has Christ alone as its object. 
and that inevitably shows itself in works done to please God. That person, that person's works will declare him to be what he truly is. That person's works will show the faith that he really has. Then he goes and gives a second example. He's going to point to Rahab, the prostitute. Find this, this, uh, this story in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab was justified in the same way as Abraham. She was a Gentile living in the land of Jericho during the Israelite conquest of the promised land. She too, James says, was justified by works. When? Well, when she received the messengers, that is the Israelite spies, and sent them out by another way, helping to spare their lives. What motivated her to do this? Was it selfish ambition? No, in her own words, she had heard what God had done to the Egyptians at the Red Sea. She had heard what God had done to deliver his people out of slavery. And she believed and she said of the God of Israel, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And this is what fueled what she went and did. Right? She professed faith in the true God with her words. And we know that faith to be real because we saw it lived out in her deliverance of the Israelite spies. Her faith was active along with her works, and her faith was completed by her works. So what do we see in these examples? We see faith and works side by side. Faith, the means of salvation, and works, the inevitable activity of a living faith that makes that faith visible and brings that faith to its intended aim. The aim of faith is to glorify God. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So how do you know a spirit is in a body? What does the body do? Well, there, it breathes. It breathes in and it breathes out. There's brain activity, right? The body has motion. How do you know when the spirit is no longer in the body? The breathing stops. The brain activity, it stops, right? The body ceases to act because it's dead. In the same way, James says, faith that has no action is seen to be what it is. It's dead. Not because it was at one point alive and then died, but because it was never alive to begin with. So to answer James's original question, no, James, the faith that does not have works cannot save. But there is a faith. There is only one. There is a faith that can save. And it is the faith that has Jesus Christ as its object. If you really believe that Jesus is alive and that he is Lord, acknowledge your spiritual poverty to him. Unite yourself to him by faith. 
Trust him to save you. Walk with him in thankfulness as your Lord who extends mercy and grace to you daily. And work in all things to worship and please him by his grace. See, the truth is Paul, as you go through farther in Galatians and you go farther in Romans and you look to Colossians and you look to Ephesians and you look to all of his other writings, Paul would agree. That's why he goes on and exhorts his hearers as believers in Christ, walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. If the Spirit of God really does dwell in a person, he says that Spirit is not in the flesh, or I'm sorry, that person is not in the flesh but in the Spirit. And that person aims to please God. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. How can you who died to sin still live in it? That was Paul's point. He agrees. Well, consider Jesus' own words. If anyone loves me, as we read earlier, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. See, there's an intimate link between truly loving Jesus and keeping his word. So what do we do with all of this? Right? We've seen James's argument. We understand that, that faith that doesn't have works is dead. We understand that the only faith uh, that we uh, may live by is the one that has Jesus as its object. What do we do with what he says? Well, I think... Um, yeah, I think several questions could come up for us as we reflect on this passage. Number one, does this mean I'm supposed to work for my salvation? No. No, it doesn't. That was not the point. You are supposed to look to Christ who saves you and conforms you to his image as you behold him and as you seek to worship and follow him. You're not to work for salvation, but you are to work out your salvation. That's what he says in Philippians 2. And as you work it out, you are to do it with fear and trembling. It is humbling yourself before God knowing that it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. You are saved by grace through faith. Only. When you produce good works, remember that you are God's workmanship, having been created by him in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand so that you should walk in them. It is he who works in you to will you to do what pleases him. And y'all, when you, yeah, when you see, uh, when you see God's grace in your life, when you see the fruit of repentance showing up, praise God. It's not humility to, to never point out what God is doing. Praise God for how he's at work. When others come to you and others point out evidences of grace in your life, praise God. 
Don't take credit. Praise God for what he's producing in you. Know that it is his spirit who is at work in you and be thankful. And don't think for a second that it doesn't matter if your life isn't producing fruit. Your life must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is fruit that is produced by the fact that you are repenting and trusting Jesus. If that's not happening, it at least shows that something is off. And if, if that's true of you, if you don't see evidence in, in, in your life of God at work, if you don't uh, see the fruit of God's spirit being produced, the answer is not to be indifferent, nor is the answer to despair. The answer is to confess that for what it is and repent. Confess and repent. Grab a brother, grab a sister, Grab more brothers, grab more sisters. Do whatever it takes. Bring them into that conversation with you. James is gonna tell us in chapter five, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Y'all, it is not enough to know that we're sinful. It's not enough just to acknowledge that we're sinful. We must work to put on Christ and to put off what is earthly in us. We must wage war against the sin that is in our lives. That's part of what it means to work. It's part of what it means to pursue God. And there is real help in looking another person in the face and confessing our sin and being honest and having them pray with you. We can be easily deceived by ourselves. We can think we're confessing and repenting if all we ever do is supposedly confess to the Lord while we continue to walk in sin. There is something helpful about looking another brother, looking another sister in the face, telling them what's going on, telling them what's real, and praying together. God designed it that way. Question number two, good works, that seems really broad. What kind of good works am I supposed to do? Well, you can begin by meditating on the words of John 6, verse 28. Then Jesus' disciples said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Great question. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the first kind of good works that you should do is believe in Jesus. Beyond that, James's category of good works, it's not ambiguous. The works that the world defines as good, that's not what James has in mind. Remember, Abraham believed God. What did that lead him to do? It led him specifically to do the good works of obeying God. It led him to forsake himself, 
right? Rahab believed God. What did that lead her to do? It led her to serve God and not the city of Jericho. Y'all, as we consider their lives, these are not cheap acts of sacrifice. Abraham was asked to take his only son to sacrifice him on an altar to God. God had made a promise to him about that son, what he was going to do through that son. He was going to give him offspring, as many as the stars in heaven, as many as the sands on the sea. But Hebrews tell us that Abraham believed God so much that he believed that God could even raise him from the dead. That's faith. Lord, help us to have faith like that. Rahab has Israelite spies, a whole nation is marching against Jericho. She believes that God is the God in heaven. She's about to lose her home. She's about to lose everything. All she has to do is go tell the king of Jericho so that they can make plans. That's not what she does. She chooses to trust God. She acts in accordance with her faith. Though they gave up much, they received back infinitely more than they could have ever given. And that's true for us. Count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. It costs a lot. It's hard. But Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. He will carry you. And it's worth it. It is worth it to forsake the world. Just like if you find a treasure hidden in a field, Jesus says about the kingdom, you find a treasure hidden in a field, you believe it's valuable, you'll go sell everything you have to buy that field. Jesus, he, he is worth following. He is a treasure greater, and he will reward his people far greater than anything he could ask us to give or to forsake. His way is better. If your faith is truly in Christ, then you must work in ways that please him not in ways that are aimed primarily at gaining you favor in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of those that you seek to please at the expense of pleasing God. Behold God in his word. Be in the word. Behold him there so that you may be conformed to the image of Jesus one degree of glory at a time. See, James gives us particular exhortations, and we can, we can turn to the rest of the scriptures, and we can find exhortations. We can find the knowledge of who God is, what he is like, what he loves, what he hates. And even specific commands that tell us what we are to do as Christians to glorify God. Know him in his word. Know that you can't earn favor from God by your works. But if you are his, work to do the things that please him, motivated by the riches of his kindness and grace. Or as Peter says, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Not to make it, not to create it, but confirm it. Show it for what it is by the way that you work.
Question number three, what if I still sin? You will. And you should never be okay with it. As John says in 1 John chapter two, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if any of you does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, we, we have these examples of Abraham and Rahab that are held up for us, but they're not examples of perfection. There's not a person in this room or any other follower of Jesus who's perfect. James himself is even going to make this clear as we get into the passage next week about taming the tongue. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. So if, you, if you're here today and you hear these words and you are convicted by areas of your life, areas where you've not obeyed Jesus, praise God for how he's convicting you. Conviction comes from the Spirit. Praise God. Don't despair. And don't go from here and begin by simply trying to work harder. Begin by meditating on the gospel, on the reality of your sin, on the deserved penalty of your sin, and on the depths of God's love in Christ for you who washes them away. In this way, press into Jesus. He has purchased and saved you by his own blood. See, we're never supposed to feel safe in our sin, right? We're not supposed to feel comfortable there. But when we know it's there, we must flee to Jesus and not away from him. Where else will we go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Don't flee from him, flee to him. The first work is to believe Jesus in everything he says. And out of that faith, out of that faith flows good works. And by your works of obedience, saving faith, it's not created, it's not maintained, but it is shown to be true. Let's pray that God will work in us to produce the good that pleases him and brings us true fulfillment and true joy. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that this kind of faith that we have seen described, the faith that works itself out, would be true of us. Lord, we, we pray that the many things that we've heard today, that you would use them to build up our faith, that for some of us who need to repent, that we would not be comfortable to just let it go, but that we would be quick to confess our sin, to desire to walk humbly and faithfully with you. Lord, we need you. We have no hope apart from you. We need your grace in Christ. Would you help us, Lord, to reflect that we believe that by the way that we live? Pray that you would produce in us maturity, steadfastness, 
then whatever trials we might face, whatever it might cost to follow you, we would be willing to, to, to pay that cost. We would be willing to endure that trial so that you would be glorified. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.